Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. 331 years ago, 19 people were executed in Salem, Massachusetts. 18 of them were hanged in front of hordes of enthralled onlookers. One unfortunate soul was crushed to death after being pinned under boulders for three long days in an effort to extract a plea from the accused man. Their crime? Witchcraft, or so their accusers said. Among those hanged was John Proctor, a local farmer and tavern owner. Proctor and his wife Elizabeth were both accused of witchcraft. Today, a house bearing his name stands just outside the modern borders of Salem. It may technically be in the next town over, but the John Proctor house looms large over the darkest parts of Salem's history. And it is absolutely full of ghosts, not only of those who were touched by the witch trials, but by generations of spirits who are there for a reason you might not expect. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. Born in England in 1631, John Proctor Jr. emigrated to America when he was just three years old with his parents, John Sr. and Martha Proctor. The family settled in Ipswich, a town in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, about 12 miles north of Salem. The elder Proctor was well-respected in Ipswich. He owned many properties and was one of the town's wealthiest residents. Despite a life of prosperity, the younger John Proctor's life was marked by loss. He married his first wife, Martha, in Ipswich in 1652. They had four children together, but in 1659, Martha died in childbirth. Only one of their kids, Benjamin, survived into adulthood. After Martha's death, Proctor married Elizabeth Thorndike in 1662, with whom he had seven more children. Two of those kids also passed away in their youth. In 1666, the family relocated to Salem. The Proctors leased a large farm on the outskirts of Salem Town, which today is Peabody, Mass. Back then, it was referred to as Salem Fields. To give you an idea of the level of respect the Proctor family had, John leased a 300-acre farm from one of the most prominent figures in Massachusetts Bay Colony, Emanuel Downing, who was one of the earliest New England settlers. His son, George Downing, had Downing Street in London where the prime minister lives, named after him. The property included a home located on a main road through Salem town. Two years after settling in Salem, Proctor obtained a license to run a tavern. While he and his sons farmed the land, the women ran the tavern. Elizabeth died in 1672. Two years later, Proctor married for a third time to Elizabeth Bassett. Between 1674 and 1692, they had six children. At the time of the trials, Elizabeth was pregnant with their seventh. If you're counting, that's a total of 17 kids for John Proctor. According to the Salem Witch Museum, when the first witchcraft accusations began in the winter of 1692, Proctor's reaction was skeptical. From what we can see in the records, he appears to have been a practical and forward-thinking man, successful in business and hardworking. He was 60, had sired 17 children, not all of whom lived to adulthood, by three different wives, and was outspoken about his feelings against the witchcraft hysteria. The accusations first came from two very young girls, Elizabeth Paris, the nine-year-old daughter of Salem's minister Samuel Paris, and Abigail Williams, the 11-year-old niece of Samuel Paris. Though many people joined in on the accusations of witchcraft as time progressed, 
Paris and Williams remained the main accusers throughout the trials. Motivations for the accusations were varied, and for some onlookers, suspicious. From the start, Proctor was critical of the accusers. According to Salem Ghost City Tours, he did not agree with the witch hunt and was very vocal about his opinion. He would mention his disbelief in the witchcraft accusations to anyone who would listen. In her book titled Hunting for Witches, Frances Hill mentions that Proctor publicly demanded the accusers be hanged for their deceit instead of the other way around. In Proctor's case, he and his wife were first accused by their servant Mary Warren. Mary began to display fits of demonic possession in March 1692. Salem Ghost City Tours wrote that Proctor beat Mary to correct her behavior, which, of course, led to a miraculous recovery. It seems like Mary was acting normally until Proctor went on a business trip. While he was away, her strange symptoms returned and she decided to join the trials. Naturally, other young girls in the village immediately followed. Some accounts suggest that Abigail Williams joined in on those accusations because Proctor had been calling for her hanging, and she retaliated against him to divert attention from herself. According to the Salem Witch Museum, Proctor would say publicly that he felt all of the accusers would come to their senses if they were thrashed. His words would come back to haunt him. Elizabeth was arrested on April 10th and questioned on April 11, 1692. By the end of Elizabeth's examination, John was also accused of witchcraft and arrested. Proctor's sons, Benjamin and William, and daughter Sarah were also accused later in the year as more and more people were named. In the complaints leveled against them, they are accused of sundry acts of witchcraft. Benjamin's complaint reads that he is wanted on high suspicion of several acts of witchcraft against several people whereby great hurt and damage hath been done to the bodies of said persons and therefore craved justice. The biggest reason that the accused were unable to successfully clear their names is that the religious hysteria of the time dictated that they were guilty in the court of public opinion as soon as they were accused. Another reason is because the judges, likely acting on their own bias, allowed spectral evidence in the court proceedings. According to the Library of Congress, spectral evidence was testimony in which witnesses claimed that the accused appeared to them and did them harm in a dream or a vision. Contemporary witch lore held that witches could project themselves spiritually either directly or with the aid of Satan in order to harm their victims from afar. The witch's victims might then see a spectral image of the witch approach them as an apparition. The specter of the witch could pinch, bite, or choke its victims or otherwise harass them while the witch remained in a remote location. Its appearance might be that of the witch or of an animal acting as the witch's familiar. The court could then use the witness's testimony of these events to support a conviction for witchcraft. In the majority of the allegations against the more than 200 people accused during the Salem witch hysteria, accusers reported spectral evidence in their claims. So essentially, a nine-year-old kid could have a nightmare about a scary dog, and an innocent person could be accused of using black magic against them. According to the Library of Congress, the accusers called out in fright and spoke wildly during the questioning of the accused, as though they were witnessing spectral goings-on that were invisible to other people in the courtroom. When John Proctor was being investigated for witchcraft, his accusers submitted spectral evidence against him. Samuel Paris, again, the father and uncle of the accusers, kept notes throughout the trials, which are now called the Salem Witchcraft Papers, 
and were transcribed by the University of Virginia. According to the testimony Paris recorded on April 4, 1692, Abigail Williams accused Proctor and his wife of harassing her in the night. As Paris wrote, Abigail Williams complained of Goodman Proctor and cried out, What are you come to? You can pinch as well as your wife. At night, she complained of Goodman Proctor again and beat upon her breast and cried he pinched her. In the courtroom, Abigail and Mary Warren repeatedly accused Proctor of appearing spectrally, including on the lap of the magistrate. Paris wrote that Abigail was seized with fits and had to pause her testimony. At the same time, Mary was unresponsive. Paris described her as deaf and dumb, but still continuing her knitting. When she came to, she agreed with Abigail that Proctor was appearing spectrally in the courtroom and later claimed that she was being choked by him. It's also worth noting that, at the time of the witch hysteria, Harris was wildly unpopular as the town's minister. A massive public scandal involving accusations of the devil's work afoot in Salem would have been a perfect and extremely convenient way to redirect the town's disapproval and reaffirm his position in the community. Just saying. Both proctors were convicted in August 1692. John was sentenced to death, but Elizabeth received a stay of execution because she was pregnant. John Proctor was hanged on August 16, 1692 at Gallows Hill. On the same day, Reverend George Burroughs, Martha Carrier, George Jacobs, and John Willard were also executed. It's not known definitively what happened to Proctor's remains, but historians suspect family members may have retrieved his body from Gallows Hill in the night. On the History of Massachusetts blog, Rebecca Brooks speculates that his body was buried near where the present-day John Proctor House stands. When the wife of Massachusetts Bay Colony Governor Phipps was accused of witchcraft, he issued a general order absolving the remaining 153 people who had been arrested or convicted of witchcraft. Elizabeth Proctor was exonerated in May 1693, when all was said and done. 19 people, and bizarrely, two dogs accused of witchcraft, had been executed. Elizabeth remarried in 1699. After Proctor's death, the land he at least went to another tenant, but two of John's sons fought to regain the land. Benjamin leased the land from the tenant, and in 1700, Thorndike Proctor purchased the farm outright. Rebecca Brooks suggests that the location of Proctor's remains might have been a motivating factor in the family reclaiming the land. As she wrote, It makes one wonder why Proctor's sons went to such great lengths to occupy and buy the land. Perhaps it was just a good investment, seeing that farmland was so valuable at the time, or maybe it was so the family could continue to farm the land they had worked on for so long. It is also entirely possible, though, that the reason Thorndike wanted the land was because Proctor was in fact secretly buried somewhere on the Downing Farm, and Thorndike wanted to keep that secret grave from being discovered. Despite its name, the John Proctor house was never actually lived in by John Proctor. In fact, the house didn't even exist in his lifetime. A study by an archaeological conservator dated construction to about 1727, 30 years after Proctor was hanged, and records in the Peabody Historical Society confirm that construction date. In Thorndike Proctor's accounting book, there are entries for a significant amount of construction supplies. The only building still standing in Salem today that has any connections to the witch trials is the Jonathan Corwin House, today also called the Salem Witch House. 
Along with Judge John Hawthorne, Judge Corwin presided over the trials, hearing the testimony of those leveling accusations at their fellow townsfolk and the testimony of the accused who were desperate to clear their names and avoid being put to death for supernatural crimes. Now, the house is part of the Salem Witch Museum and is open for tours. The John Proctor House remained in the Proctor family for about 150 years, until it was sold to someone outside the family. After that, Rebecca Brooks wrote, the house changed owners only a number of times. In 1968, the Raponi family purchased the home and owned it until Marion Raponi died in 2018. In December 2018, Barbara Bridgewater and her husband Christopher Mendez of Huntington Beach, California, bought the house. Unlike other notorious and well-known landmarks in Salem that are now open to the public, the Proctor House is a private residence. It has been modified over the years. Now, the 3,900-square-foot house has two stories with six bedrooms, seven fireplaces, a swimming pool, uh, and only two bathrooms. Although you can't visit the house now, the owners are crowdsourcing enough funds to be able to open the Proctor House for tours. Barbara and her family don't spend as much time at the house as they want to because of the paranormal activity they report experiencing there. On Haunted Salem Live, Adam and I investigated the home with Chip Coffee and Dana and Greg Newkirk. On the show, Barbara described some of the activities she's witnessed, saying, I've heard footsteps above and a piano playing, which is downstairs, but it's just sitting there. They've also heard voices and seen shadows in the house. Her daughter, Catherine Mendez, has experienced recurring nosebleeds in the home and has even been pushed down the stairs. As she said, it's just kind of scary thinking that there's something else that's in the house with us. During the investigation, we collected multiple EVPs, some unintelligible, but all clearly the voice of a gruff male. Dana, who often uses tarot cards as an investigative tool, repeatedly pulled the devil card, which could mean the literal devil, but also could indicate a person with bad intention is present. We sensed a menacing presence, and the name we kept coming back to was Giles Corey. Corey was the man executed during the witch trials by being pressed to death. He refused to enter a plea. In an attempt to coerce one out of him, authorities tortured him by placing heavy stones on his prone body. They added more and more weight for three days until Corey eventually died. Some historic accounts have his last words as more weight in defiance of those who tortured him. Other accounts have Corey uttering a much darker final thought, damn you, I curse you, and Salem. Because that investigation was on a live television show, we couldn't investigate as thoroughly as we wanted. So Adam and I, along with Greg, Dana, and Chip, went back the next year for an episode of Kindred Spirits. What happened seemed unbelievable. Dana did another tarot reading, and again, she kept pulling the devil card. We assumed it indicated the presence of a dark entity in the house, but as we investigated, we couldn't make contact with anything that seemed to have ill intent. Eventually, we realized that it was generations of Proctor's relatives who had lived in the house for more than a century we were contacting. They saw us come in with our tarot cards and our rituals and our investigative equipment, talking loudly about witchcraft, and what we realized astonished us. The spirits in the house, having lived with the burden of a legacy of witchcraft accusations for their whole lives, were scared of us. They thought we were coming in and doing the devil's work, and they were protecting the home as best they could. Once we explained to them that we were there with good intentions and were trying to help, the conversation completely changed. But that does not mean the activity has ceased. And so to talk more about that, 
I had to bring on my BFF once again, Mr. Adam Berry. Uh, he's been investigating the Proctor House outside of television for quite a while now, and he's got some really interesting stories and theories to tell. So that's coming up after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It would not be a Proctor House chat if I did not bring on Mr. Adam Berry, who has spent a lot of time at the Proctor House investigating. I have been there for a lot of it, but he's also been investigating it on his own quite a bit. And not a lot of people get to go in there and do those things. So welcome to the program, Mr. Berry. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a very lucky bird, I think, get to go in there and hang out with all these ghosts. It's funny because since we did the Proctor House, I have moved into a house that was built right around the same time as the Proctor House in 1730. And whenever I post photos or videos, people are always like, it looks like the Proctor House. And I'm like, yes, except it's not haunted, unfortunately. But <laughs> it's got really cool history. It's funny because it does remind me a lot of the Proctor House minus the ghosts. I wish my house was haunted, but no, Proctor House has it going on. So we've had some pretty wild experiences there over the years. Let's get right down to it. Most unnerving thing that has ever happened is, you know, when Dana Newkirk, who is helping us on those investigations, like is doing her tarot spread just to like, you know, we want to feel the vibe. You and I are like up for a lot of different ideas. And he flips the devil card. How many times? Like five times over the course of two investigations? Yes. And the the crazy thing. So we investigated the Proctor House on live television. Like one does. Yes, it was the Haunted Salem Live special that Travel Channel did a few years back. And it was a really cool idea. So basically, the, the concept was that we were investigating the Proctor House. It was me, Adam, uh, Chip, and Greg and Dana were there. And then there was the jail nearby, which I believe the Ghost Brothers were in. And then Jack and Katrina, Jack Osborne and Katrina Weidman, they were in another location. I can't remember where they were exactly. Rockefellers. Oh, right. It's like a restaurant. So we were all investigating simultaneously around Salem, and it was a really cool special. But what we did, created a sigil on live television to kind of create like more activity. I think, what was the sigil? What did it stand for? Like open a door or... Yeah, this is a doorway. First and foremost, we fought for that location. When this idea came up and was pitched to us, we were like, this sounds awesome. We love Salem. But they told us the three locations and you and I both immediately were like, no, we have to do the Proctor House. Not only did it fit our vibe, like it fits the Kindred Spirits vibe, but me personally, I think the history in that location and on that land is like way more interesting than, you know, an old restaurant, right? So that out of the way, we knew that we had to do something special. We got Greg and Dana involved. And I think Greg said something like, you know, why don't we make a sigil that is a doorway 
to the other side and we're going to put it on live television. We'll tell everybody to kind of focus and concentrate on this sigil and we will see what happens in the investigation because we only had what three hours three and a half hours to investigate on live television so we needed something that would charge the environment immediately and be careful what you wish for as they say (laughs) You know, seriously, I think we work a lot with the idea of intention and energy and kind of bringing things about. And that was an ultimate experiment for us. We were like, this could go a couple of ways. And hopefully we're entertaining enough that if it doesn't work, we'll just keep people happy on live TV. (laughs) But I think it did raise the activity in the house quite a bit. And also we had people complaining at home that the sigil was causing activity in their houses. Like, don't know that that's ever happened before. People come to us all the time and they're like, I think somebody tweeted us the other day because our episodes are airing and they were like, be careful watching these ghost shows. A ghost will come through your television and and get you. And I was like, look, that's never happened. And then I was thinking, but on live television, when there's an actual live investigation, there were, I think there were about a million people online looking at that sigil at one point. And people were saying their lights were flickering, static was going off, weird feelings, had to like get out of their living room and come back. And I remember toward the end of that investigation, because we could hear the the live feed from the truck, like the producers talking, and they were really adamant. They were like, they were like, okay, we're going to film you guys closing the sigil but we're going to show it during the credits. And we were like, no, 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 no. You have to show it live on TV. Everyone has to see that we've closed this sigil, that everything is fine, that you are fine. Otherwise, the world may explode. Yeah, I remember like the host, Dave Schrader was hosting and they had, they sent him like a a last minute like script where they were like, talk about closing the sigil, show them closing the sigil. Like to close it, we had to turn it upside down. And then fun fact, Adam stole the sigil after that and took it home. I think I had it for a while and then it just never made it back to Greg and Dana for a period of time. And I can't, what's weird is I don't know if that was just like me being lazy, probably, or if there was something about it that I was drawn to and I kind of wanted to keep it for a little bit because that thing is literally charged by millions of, of people and the intention behind it. But it was good that I had it because when we went back to the Proctor house on our own, to kind of figure out what was going on from our point of view, because we only had three hours on live television. And I know that Barbara, who owns the property, was adamant about getting us in there for a real investigation. And so we went back. I'm glad I had it because we were able to utilize that sigil again on the second investigation. Yeah. So basically... Once she kind of got to know us and saw how we investigated, um, she really wanted us to come back and give the Proctor House the full kindred spirits treatment, as they say. And so we did. And now I'll have you speak to this more just because I feel like you kind of are more familiar with the activity because you do go there like at least every six months at this point. Um, Adam runs like private investigations there. So if anybody's interested, we'll find out about that at the end here. But just tell me like, what kind of activity do you remember was she experiencing that made her think like, okay, we need to get Kindred involved here? It's the same sort of activity that she had talked about when we were there for four hours. But as you know, in a four hour investigation, we can only do so much. And the activity that we had was rather intense. We thought at that point, Giles Corey was there or his ghost was there and he was manipulating the situation. 
He was lying to us, taking advantage. And I think, you know, Barbara really appreciated us getting those kind of answers. But when you're left with like that on the table, it's almost a bit more frightening um, because you're like, wait, there's this ghost in this house that's like being manipulative and, and mean. And so for her, she wanted us to come back and finish the job. And so did we. I mean, I felt like we had unfinished business with that location. Um, and so we all got back together and it was you, me, uh, Greg and Dana came again. And sure enough, we started with those tarot cards and she flipped that devil card two more times. And we were very uh, concerned about, I mean, God, we were just concerned about the whole situation. And spoiler alert, obviously, we're going to talk about the end of that investigation. It turned out that the spirits there were concerned about what we were doing, because what we are doing gave them the impression of witchcraft and the occult and things like using tarot cards. And they were just afraid that they were going to get caught again and be brought up to trial. I mean, it was it was literally this weird memory that they could not shake, and rightly so. And we were the problem, like, you know. They were not the problem. It was us. People ask us about tarot cards all the time. Like, why are you bringing tarot cards into investigations? And we, obviously, you and I will try anything at this point when it comes to investigating. Like, we really like to experiment. And, you know, the idea behind tarot cards is that they are kind of a divination type tool. And like some people look at them as ways to provide insight into their lives. So maybe you're just trying to get a little guidance on an investigation. You know, why not bring a tarot reading into the mix? And so that's that's kind of what our intention was with that to begin with. And it just really resonated with that location in particular. So yeah, and I think what's interesting is, you know, we figured out what it was, right? And we had a heart to heart with them. And the act by the end, the activity had changed because we we let them know that it is a different year. It is a different time period. We respect their boundaries. We understand where they're coming from. We obviously don't mean any harm, but they're safe. Like that was the key, I think, you know, you're safe. And since going back there, like I was, I was there in October. So Salem in October is like so charged with all kinds of really wonderful things. And if you've never been to Salem in October, you've got to get there just because the feeling of the location is so powerful. And what's interesting is the first two nights, so we did a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The first two nights, it was the same sort of activity. We were using the uh, paranormal tripwires, and we had our little lanterns out, and there was so much activity. And they understood what we were doing at that time. They weren't afraid of us. And I actually have that Salem Witch Trials document from 1694 signed by Samuel Paris, who was the, you know, the gentleman that kicked off the whole fury of the witches. And so I brought that book and I brought that document. And what's interesting is they didn't care about it. They did not care for it. They did not react to it. We got, we were getting activity. And then as soon as I brought that document out, it almost like stopped. So maybe they did care. They were like, uh, nope, they didn't want to touch it. They didn't want to interact with it. But on Sunday, the activity was a 180. Sunday, it was quieter. It seemed a little more peaceful, less talkative, less activity with the lights. And I was like, this is so weird. I don't understand why this is happening. And then I realized that it was the Sabbath. Right. I was going to say, because it was Sunday. Right. And so it's like they're they're occupied with other things. And maybe, you know, they don't have they don't have time to mess with us. Like, you know, they're they're this their day of rest. And so I, I, th- I thought that was really strange. But it seems now that, you know, they are interacting. They do want to speak with us. I think a couple of times 
whatever was in the attic that we did not get to touch on, there's like this weird male energy in the attic. He started making himself known a bit more. And I don't think he's connected to the Proctor family at all. I think he's, you know, somebody who existed at some point and just is a bit angry and aggressive, but he started coming out of the woodworks. So, you know, there's always, there's things changing constantly there. And I can't wait to go back, going back at the end of April of 2023. And then um, again, I probably in the fall. So I think that it's really easy to forget that, you know, the Proctor house has 300 years of history to it. And so a lot of people have lived there. Um, and then I also wonder too, and, and what I wonder what you think about this, just kind of that they're not there all the time. Like obviously the place is very secured. So please nobody go try to break in there or anything, but it's not their primary residence. So it's empty and like the ghosts kind of own it for a lot of the time. So do you get the vibe that when you go in there and you do your investigations, do you feel like they are like, hey, we like being alone? Or do you think they kind of welcome the interaction? I think it's a mixed bag. I think there is an entity, I, I didn't even, I forgot to mention, we didn't even go down into the second basement. So there's like that cellar area that we went to and investigated. But then there's one that's right next to the main bathroom entrance that you sort of have to duck down and go under. There was something down there messing with everybody last time. And it was as if they enjoyed the idea that like, oh, look, I can do this. The guy in the attic does not want anything to do with us, makes himself known in that way. Meaning that like, he's saying, you know, okay, you're here, but I'm not going to tell you anything. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want anything to do with you. And then I think the family we speak to uh, that we've gone there, I think they are there and that it is their house. And I don't necessarily believe that they're fully aware and active, but just like we did, we sort of conjured them into the space, you know, in a weird way. And I think they can be called to that house, their energy or their, their, whatever that is. I think that they show up if they are asked to, and if you ask them the right appropriate questions. We just need to say this here and now, because people say to us all the time, the John Proctor house isn't in Salem. We are very aware of that. It's in Peabody, right? Peabody. Or if you don't live in New England, that's Peabody. It's so much easier to say Salem because people know where Salem is. I know. And it's very steeped in Salem history. And so there are people who come at us all the time about that. And like, we're very aware. We're just trying to make it easier for you, dear listener. The connections are very big. Like, even though the Proctor family lived as far as they did from Salem, they had to go into Salem for trial. Like, they were connected to Salem no matter what. So, even though it's been 300 years and now it's Peabody and, you know, things have changed in terms of like lines of cities, they still were extremely active in Salem and they were tried and prosecuted in Salem. Right. Thinking to like, what are the most common occurrences there? Like if someone's investigating, like I kind of envision that one day the Proctor House might even turn into like some sort of museum or something. I don't know, but that's kind of what I think will happen eventually. But if someone's visiting the Proctor House, either with you or privately, what kind of activity can they expect to experience there? You're going to get interaction. Spirits are going to interact with your equipment, but not as a not like as a circus trick like you have to give them conversation you have to spark conversation and give them something worth talking about 
you have to know your history. You have to know, you know, who you're speaking to, because at this point, I think they are aware that we know that they are there. So if you go in saying, oh, what's your name? They're not going to answer you because, you know, it's to them. They're like, you should know my name. I've, I've talked to you many times. So that's the kind of activity you're going to get. Now, the new activity is is strange in the attic. And we were doing the Estes method where you wear the uh, blindfold and the, and the headphones. And our, our friend Amanda was there and she literally was getting hit on by this creepy dude in the attic because I was listening to the headphones and I kept saying, I want to talk to you. I want you to do it. And then I took my headphones. And I was like, who, who's asking the questions? And they were like, Amanda. And I was like, Amanda here. And so she like, she was like, okay. And she puts on the headphones and sits there for a minute. And then she was like, yep. Creepy dude. Oh, that's so funny. Oh my gosh. So you creepy dude in the attic. Check. Yeah, check creepy dude in the attic. And also he doesn't mind being creepy to everybody. He's an equal opportunity. Yeah, this guy is an equal opportunist. I think he likes to mess with everybody. So the next time we go, when we get there in April, I think I'm going to focus a bit more in that attic space. We got a lot of activity down in the um, the fireplace where you would just kind of sit and have a, where you would commune, I guess. That seems to be a lot of the family. The family's on the first floor and then the attic and the basement People that really aren't the original family are kind of hanging out there. I do remember having, we got a lot of EVP there. Um, We heard a disembodied voice at one point um, upstairs. Uh, And that was kind of when we first started investigating. Like what's interesting about that place is no one had really investigated it until we got there. And I always, I'm always so interested in kind of like what the vibe is in a location. Like when you come in as kind of the first time investigators acknowledging these spirits versus like coming in to a place that's been investigated regularly. And it really does kind of uh, dictate how you approach the investigation and how you communicate with the spirits there. So I think that's really useful information for people who want to investigate. So if people do want to join you, you're going back in October, right? Yeah, we're going to do one other time closer to the spooky season. Okay. Um, but if anybody wants any information, they can go to ghosthuntsalem.com. I love those. I love that you do those. Those kind of intimate investigations, I think, are really great because I think people, um, I don't think they realize how approachable we are. It's so funny because sometimes we do these big major events and these conventions where there's like hundreds of people there. And those are so much fun. Like yeah. strange escapes, strange escapes. Like you cannot be a strange escapes party on a Friday night and the lectures and the investigation. It's like so much fun. But when we get to do these more intimate moments, like there are, there are 12 people at the yeah. Parker house with me and I'm going to be there with you the whole time. And we're going to talk about ghosts. It's like, it's, it's a very unique experience. And uh, the last time we were there, the Peabody uh, police department, um, they, they were like, they kept being like, okay, what are you doing? What's happening? They like called me to check in. And really, I just think they wanted to like come and like hang out. So people don't realize how often like law enforcement shows up at our investigations and it's never because we're doing anything wrong especially in some of these more sleepy towns they're just like so we heard you guys are looking for ghosts here and they're just there asking questions like they just want to know i've been pulled over before and it was all because they just wanted to know how the investigation went so i love that listen if they're going to pull you over they can have instant access to what has happened 
Anyways, all right. So anything else on the horizon you want to tell people about? I mean, obviously, watch Kindred Spirits on Discovery Plus and Travel Channel. Even if new episodes aren't airing, just keep watching over and over again. Please do. Yeah, please watch Kindred Spirits. Come see us at Strange Escapes. Come see us at uh, another event. I know that you and I are working on a lot of really great projects on the side. I have a book coming out in September that people can get excited about. I'll be posting, so follow me on the internet. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Barry. It's been lovely as always. I miss you and we'll hang out soon. Yeah. Thank you. Talk soon. The Proctor House presents such a strange conundrum when it comes to paranormal cases. I don't truly feel like the spirits in the house are wholly conscious beings. I think it's that bit of their energy and stress of what they endured that was so reactionary to our investigative methods. It makes you wonder how many hauntings aren't necessarily a person regretful or not ready to move on, but just energy awakened by something we did that was completely unintentional. It just lends more and more to the mystery of all things ghostly, and another prime example of why I do what I do. But it also makes me wonder how much energy we all put out there and how much attention we should be paying to it. We have more power than we think, power that can apparently span centuries. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is hosted and written by me, Amy Bruni, with additional research by Taylor Hagedorn and Cassandra De Alba. This show is edited and produced by Rima El-Kayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Learn more about this show over at grimandmild.com. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.